Welcome to the Collective Evolution Show. The CE Show is a podcast that will feature anything from discussions to reports on a variety of topics, all framed within the context of transformation that is occurring within us individually and collectively as a society. You could probably relate to the fact that our current world seems to be falling apart and that things are becoming quite chaotic, and making sense of what's going on has become really tough. Old ways of viewing the world don't seem to be working anymore, so people are looking for new conversations. Many are noticing that much of traditional or mainstream media or even academia seem to be failing at understanding and exploring the cultural transitions and changes that are happening in people and society. The reality is that we've arrived at a time where we have to start talking about these emerging ideas that come from an entirely different narrative about what it means to be a human and what we're capable of. On this podcast, we'll talk about anything from current events to personal transformation, consciousness, future technology, and more. We'll explore real things that are happening in our world that are inspiring, but that may not be explored too much in pop culture or media. Of course, these topics can all be explored on our website as well at collective-evolution.com, where you'll find articles, essays, and videos. You can also join our membership platform called CTV, where we have a ton of exclusive video content, including original shows, discussions, and courses to help you make sense of the world and transform how you show up in life. You can visit CTV.one to check out our member area. That's it. That's all. I'm going to try and keep this introduction brief, you know, wearing one of my favorite shirts here um, on an episode that ended up being one of my favorites of, of the year. Um the discussion that I had with Charles Eisenstein here was sort of inspired by a number of people sending me a, the coronation, which was an essay he wrote, um, back. I, I think it had to have been near kind of the middle of, of 2020. And, and I didn't really start to look at it until it was about probably about a month and a half ago. And I am recording this in late December. So it was, it was one of those things where I was like, yeah, you know, let's, let's get into this. And I started reading it and I was fascinated by a lot of what he was saying. It, it resembled so much of, of what we had been saying, feeling, putting out there about the, uh, the COVID situation as well and how it's affecting us societally and culturally and, and what it's asking of us and what it's asking us to reflect on. So I thought, you know, I, I'd love to take this whole conversation even deeper um, because I think we're at a time where we collectively have to come up with many ways of, of making sense of what's going on around us, but also discussing some of the deeper aspects uh, within our society and within our culture and with us as individual people, the deeper aspects that are coming up as a result of this COVID, um, I guess, situation is the best way to put it. So um, Charles Eisenstein is an author. He's a speaker. If you haven't checked out his work, definitely do. There are so many parallels in his work and our work. So if you enjoy our work, you're definitely going to enjoy his work as well. And uh, yeah, really, uh, strap in. This is a, this is a good conversation here. Enjoy it. So I, I figured we'd start this conversation off a little bit because it's kind of hard to figure out sometimes how to break into this, but uh, a story, it's actually happened last night as I was like kind of figuring out in my mind, like, how should I start this interview? And um, we were picking up um, like almost like these like burrito salad bowls at a local shop. And, uh, and of course, you know, my wife gets out of the car, she goes into the place and as she's, she opens the door and she sees a lady that's coming out and, you know, she had her mask on, like the lady had her mask on and, um, you know, the, the lady kind of stopped before she 
was going to exit the store and she looked at my wife who normally picks up the bowls if we pick them up. There's a table just like, just inside the building. So you don't need to put on a mask. You open the door, you put your hand and you grab it and you leave, right? And the lady would re- refused to walk past her, even though she was standing outside holding the door open. She refused to walk past her because she was like, you're not wearing a mask. You need to put on your mask before I can walk past you. And she's like, well, I, I can't because I'm holding the door open for you. She's like, well, I'm not walking past you. And then so she, in order to put on the mask, she would have to let go of the door. In essence, close the door on a community member so that they can exit themselves. And it, it, it made me think of, of what we were sort of planning to talk about here, which is COVID-19 and community and how we're sitting in this point, and this is the kind of the launching pad. We're sitting in this point where Two people were just interacting in an everyday occurrence, one with a slightly different perspective on COVID where, hey, maybe maybe it's not as dangerous to me or to the community as I think, whereas the other one kind of on the other side, very fearful. I'm very curious to kind of like set the context here. What's your take on hearing this as you're observing this and, and even your own experience in this? Um, so we'll start there and then we'll kind of get into some more specifics. Yeah, there is so much in that story and so many uh, directions from which I could comment on it. Uh, So on the one hand, you can't even just say that it's fear. Um, A lot of it is also kind of conformity, but also even into social conscience. Right. Where, and, And for most people, or for many people at least, probably most people, it's, it's a mix of all these things. So the woman who wouldn't walk past her wife, on the one hand, maybe she's afraid of getting COVID. Right. On the other hand, uh, she's uh, offended by your wife's nonconformity to a social custom and norm. Mm-hmm. And this is true in any part of the world. If you egregiously violate the customs of the tribe, you will be treated as an outsider yeah. uh, or worse or an enemy. Third, uh, the woman maybe is thinking, wow, this person is being irresponsible. Uh, I'm not afraid of COVID, but I could infect somebody else. And she's not living up to her social responsibility. Mm-hmm. So these, you know, and you can't tell uh, which of these three or maybe other motivations is going through her mind. Uh, and so people who are disturbed by the masking, the distancing and this whole COVID regime tend to impute the worst motivations onto others. And that feeds into this us versus them uh, mentality that is poisoning our social body. Uh, so those are those are a few of the things I'm seeing there. Uh, and then also, <clears throat> uh, you know, about community. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the, the, the era of COVID is not like, it's not like all of a sudden community is under threat. This has been happening for decades or, or even centuries. Yeah. The dissolving of community uh, as we progress toward uh, a more modern, more market-oriented society where we no longer know and depend on our neighbors and our community members, but, but we uh, source all of our needs from impersonal markets. Mm-hmm. So 
and this is goes all the way back to the beginning of the industrial era era where where people become functionaries in a machine and lose their individuality in a mass society so here the the masking is uh, part of this loss of individuality where a lot of the behavior in stores now is is like since you can't see people's faces they become more impersonal yeah and interactions a lot of people say this in the supermarket you know people just go about their business and there's not a lot of humanity anymore yeah it's a lot harder i find it a lot harder to signal empathy and humanity to another face when they can't see my facial expression for sure so i, I see it as like the culmination almost of well it doesn't have to be a culmination but a further intensification of a long trend so yeah yeah like ironically or paradoxically community depends on uniqueness yes you have to to be part of a community you have to be seen uh, for your unique being and valued for your unique gifts. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. You mentioned the, uh, the, the supermarket thing where people are not even able to sort of have the interactions anymore. One of the details I just recently noticed was, um, I would have a, like an exchange with, with some people more recently when you're at the store and let's say you have a mask on and you're actually talking with somebody. And I'm, what I'm noticing now is the voices are actually becoming monotone. Um, that is to say, like, you know, obviously within kind of like our facial expressions, we learn a lot. Our nervous system learns a lot from seeing someone else's facial expression. But we also learn from the tone of their voice more about what they're saying, some more details. And when I started to notice that even now tone of voice was starting to become I could I could almost not sense or read what somebody was feeling. I was wondering, like, is 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 what's happening right now in, in the loss of, of the the facial expressions now extending to our expressive tone of voice? Like, have you noticed that at all? Uh, I haven't, uh, mostly because I almost never go out. <laughs> yeah. But but that would you know that would be an interesting reduction of uh, an alarming reduction of speech to its semantic content. Yeah. Because it was so, so, and that's actually related to the digitalization of our lives, right? Which depends on a reduction uh, of interaction and of ourselves into data. Like even this conversation, um, you know, we have a fairly high fidelity uh, audio connection, and we can see each other. Uh, but still, between me and you, there is a machine yeah. that reduces everything that I say and every movement that I make into a stream of bits, which is then reconstructed on the other side. Yep. So like a philosophical question is, uh, is that good enough? Is it possible to reduce reality to data, mm -hmm. which is the, the, the program of the information age? It's also called the Internet of Things, where every single object and every single animal on a farm uh, everything has a has a label yeah so so to encompass the world in data is part of the ambition to to be able to control it rationally uh, so this there's there's like a deep movement here that uh, of which the the monotone you're talking about it's it's part of the dehumanization mm -hmm. that that is actually implicit in the surrender of life to technology yeah 
which takes its origins all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, or, or even before, actually, uh, to, to the first mass societies. Um, yeah, I mean, I could philosophize a lot more about that, <laughs> but I'll, I'll maybe just leave it at that for the moment. Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 a lot of interesting observations. And, and you know, I, I wonder, like, in this age, we have this digital age where, you know, we have so much communication, we can share information like crazy. Now, obviously, there's there's this thing now of, of censorship that has sort of intensified greatly, especially around the COVID era where, um, you know, certain viewpoints or certain worldviews about COVID are pretty much off the table. You're not allowed to talk about it unless it sort of matches that, um, that main sort of mainstream narrative. And I, I wonder how, like, I, I look at the very real interaction, societal interaction that we began this conversation with. And I thought to myself, like, you know, me and my wife, we, we look, we look into this stuff. We have different, um, you know, we run alternative media. We talk to a lot of different people and gather a lot of different perspectives. You know, the woman that was choosing not to walk through the doorway was probably looking at, um, a mainstream perspective and, and garnering the potentially the fear, whether it be justified or unjustified, but just looking at one narrative all the time. And it, it almost, you know, suggested like, we're very much as people um, right now, not only are we losing community, but we're living in very much two different worlds or even many different worlds sometimes. Um, it almost seems challenging to think about a way out of that. I wonder if you've had any thoughts on how we could potentially resolve some of these challenging issues with, with living in essence in completely different worlds, um, yet interacting with each other on a daily basis. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are, are have been noticing this seeming bifurcation of reality or multifurcation of reality, and and especially on on social media, uh, the the public discourse resolving into echo chambers. Yeah. Uh, and it happens, you know, with the um, where, where no communication happens between the echo chambers, and where each one exercises a kind of a a uh, collective confirmation bias, mm -hmm. where the things that validate their viewpoint are uh, upvoted or algorithmically selected or uh, socially condoned, <clears throat> whereas if you um, bring in contrary information, you know, like you get ignored, maybe you get shunned, maybe you get kicked off the group. Uh, you, if it's a, you know, if it's a mainstream group, you get kicked off as an anti-vaxxer yeah. that happened to my wife. If it, but even if it's like a more conspiracy oriented group, you can get kicked off as, Oh, this person must be controlled opposition or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah. Exactly. So, so like then the, so the question then is if these social and, and, uh, a conscious and unconscious methods of selection bias and confirmation bias are operating. The question that I always ask myself and ask other people is if you are wrong, how would you know it? Mm -hmm. Because this is like, this is like a unifying question in a way, uh, a universal question. Um, somebody, in fact, most people, in fact, probably everybody, is profoundly wrong about something that they are convinced of. So, in fact, like if you look back on your life, you've probably, you know, 
you probably you probably believe things now that you fervently rejected yeah. uh, five years ago or 10 years ago. So if there is to be peace in our society and if there is to be any kind of coherence, then we have to develop and practice the art of 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 knowing that you're wrong, <laughs> the, the art of discovering where you're wrong, mm -hmm. um, the, the art of communicating. And how how do you, how do you do that? How do you how do you seriously look at a viewpoint that challenges your worldview? Yeah. This is this is overridingly important. Yeah. Because if we don't do that, I don't see any way that our society is going to heal. And, and this is. Uh, you know, across many, many issues. It's not just COVID, of course. Yeah. Like it's the the race issue. issue. Uh, it's climate change. Um, it's pretty much any issue that you can name. The same dynamic is at play. Yeah. So this is the, you know, this is the crisis right now on a deep level. It's a crisis in meaning making. It's a crisis in um, uh, critical thinking. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of this recognition, um, like one of the foundations of our work is that is that navigating the outer world is, you know, like when we talk about politics, for example, you know, we'll get flack from some people because it'll be like, you know, that's not spiritual or that's not conscious, you know, to speak about that stuff. That's That's a negative distraction, so to speak. And we kind of take this position where it's more like what's happening there and our interactions there is a reflection of our current state of being thinking, you know, however you might want to look at it. And, um, and in that I, I'm kind of looking at, based on what you just said, would you describe the uh, getting better at critical thinking, getting better at making sense of reality? Would you describe these things as, as sort of almost like a spiritual experience or almost like a, a transformational personal transformational experience? Yeah, it, it, you know, like for one thing, this this um, dichotomy between the inner and the outer, that and the idea that well, you know, to be spiritual, we should withdraw from mm -hmm. the world of the flesh and the material world to focus on the spiritual world, and that if we change the inner, then the outer will magically change. That's really limiting mm -hmm. because. And, and at some point, many people realize that, wow, to actually get grist for the mill of inner change, I need to engage the outer world yeah. so that I can see my wounds and my limitations projected yeah. onto the screen of life so that I can even work on them. Otherwise, how do I even know where my blind spots are if I don't encounter them through my relationships? Yeah. So, um yeah, like <clears throat> so to, to to apply that to to critical thinking and um, our clashing worldviews, and what if I'm wrong? Um, you know, our opinions about the world these are not isolated intellectual constructs, but for a lot of people, I mean, for some people they they are um, insignificant, but for most people. Uh, like say our beliefs about vaccines, pro or con, our beliefs about uh, political parties. These are part of our, our identity. They are a, um, a token of our belonging to a certain group. 
They are a token of our moral uh, virtue, our intelligence. And you can tell that by the characterizations that each side offers of the other, which boil down to bad and stupid. <laughs> so if you, if your sense of your worth is based on being right and smart, it's going to be really hard to change your mind about anything significant because then you will be confessing to being bad and stupid. So this is obviously uh, an inner work of confronting our conditional self-love, conditional self-approval, uh, habits of self-rejection, our uh, traumas of belonging, traumas around abandonment, belonging, rejection. Uh, this is the essence of spiritual work, this kind of inner healing. It is, it's not that, that something's wrong with you and that's why you're intolerant of opposing beliefs mm -hmm. and close-minded. It's that in some way you've been hurt. There's healing to be done. Because if you were fully healed, fully self-accepting, um, and didn't have any unresolved trauma around rejection and exclusion and conditional love, then you know it would it would not be a big deal to be like, oh yeah, I was wrong about that because here's what I was thinking, and and like it wouldn't be that big a deal if you were if you, and this is actually. Um, I, I've noticed that when people do change their worldview about something, it's it happens a lot more easily if they know that they're loved and accepted no matter what. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's almost like uh, it, it's it's creating the space for us to be able to explore it more easily. Um, and and you know, so so much of the time when we when we talk about these controversial issues, you see people coming from like you said the the position where the assumption is the other person is bad or stupid. And so it almost feels like they, the aggression is what they believe might, maybe they don't believe this. Maybe this is a subconscious thing that happens, but that the aggressiveness might change, get them to change. But um, the aggressive just puts up a big barrier. Um, so, you know, one question building off of this is, do you, do you see a world where like upcoming, like, I mean, I, I would imagine, you do, but I'm curious to get a more detailed uh, uh, thought on this. Do you see a world where we are in that space of, on a collective level, us being able to, to admit more easily when we're wrong or be a lot more fluid in our perspectives than we are today? Um, <clears throat> yes. Uh, in a way, the... the um, venomous divisions right now that we see in our online interactions. Um, I don't know, somehow, I, like before COVID especially, I've, I was noticing more kindness, more civility, more compassion, not online, but in people's personal interactions. Yeah. Like I would notice even customs officials, like the worst in the world are Canadian customs officials, by the way, <laughs> no offense intended, but but even like customs officials, uh, TSA agents, you know, yeah. um, there was this feeling that we're kind of all in this together. Um, a little like people somehow weren't taking the, the, their job description of suspicion 
of everybody passing their desk quite so seriously. Mm-hmm. It's like, we don't really believe in this game anymore. So it was almost like extraordinary measures were required to set us against each other. Yeah. Because the up the rising tide is a tide of compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, someone in, in my uh, online community um, was a, a campaign worker for Andrew Yang. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in Iowa, like going, you know, door to door campaigning in Iowa and talking to Democrats and Republicans. And it's a very conservative area. You know, most people there were Republicans. Uh, and again and again and again, what she encountered was people just wanting to stop fighting each other. Yeah. Like like saying, can't we just stop arguing? You know, can't we just get along? And you know, it's important not to uh, use that to bypass uh, issues that need attention. Yeah. Okay. Oh, stop complaining about your racial disparities. Let's just get along. Okay. But, but regardless, like that, that wasn't the attitude 50 years ago when it came to civil rights. Uh, you know, there were, there were like outspoken, vicious racists all over the place. So, so Anyway, she was so she was seeing this rising uh, tide of of peace, of compassion, and so the current division, it's it it it's like this isn't all that's going on, but sometimes in my more hopeful moments, it looks like wow, they're really having to take they they who's they for one thing, but they are really having to take extraordinary measures to divide us right now right uh, and but that said, like the, your question like what is going to get us out of this trap where where division breeds more division uh, you know when you treat somebody like an enemy, they tend to behave like an enemy mm-hmm. validating that's a t- another type of confirmation bias it's yeah. not just confirmation bias in the filtering of information, but it's also a confirmation bias in the relationships that you generate from standing inside of a certain story about the other side or about another person. So how, how are we going to break out of that? Um, and I don't have an answer to that. I mean, sometimes I hope that, that sometimes it seems like we need an intervention, <laughs> uh, you know, UFO disclosure or something, but yeah. I'm like, hold on, that actually already happened. Yeah, uh, and exactly. <laughs> and everybody's still debating over whether or not it's legit. <laughs> yeah. It was funny. Uh, I don't even know if, I, if I'm allowed to share this, but I'll, I'll try and keep it as inconspicuous as possible. Um, you might be familiar with Michael Shermer, the head of the Skeptic Society. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So he, um, he once did a TED Talk, I think it was back in like 2006 or 2007, where he like was talking about why people believe in in crazy things. And in his perspective, believing in UFOs was a crazy thing. And so he had kind of showed this picture of, of him, of a, of, a, of a UFO in the sky. And then and the next picture was him taking a snapshot of a hubcap he had thrown in the air that now looked like a UFO. And he was kind of, you know, gawking at this idea that people believe in UFOs is just crazy. And, and some of his wording alluded to that. And um, just recently, a friend of mine interviewed him for an upcoming film. And, and in that, He asked him, just kind of sidebar, um, you know, what does he think now about UFOs and and aliens and all these different things, given that, you know, the Navy and and the the mainstream media has kind of accepted this story and and really talked about it. And he's still like, no, it's all just crazy. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, you know, 
how do we how do we do this? How do we get into these positions where no amount of evidence can even open us up to the idea? You know. Um, mm-hmm. So then it begs the question, similarly to like what you were saying, like what is it going to take? And hey, maybe it could have been UFO disclosure, but I mean that didn't seem to to do much. Um, why is it that even in the face of evidence, we we can't seem to maybe move the needle as much as we might like or might think. Well, you know, the saying uh, paradigms change one funeral at a time. <laughs> right. Michael Shermer is an interesting case, though. He, he wrote, uh, I actually wrote an essay about this maybe about five years ago uh, called A Miracle in Scientific American uh, because he um, had like a pretty much a paranormal experience that he wrote about. Yes. In Scientific American, and it said he said it shook the foundations of his worldview. Yeah, like you could tell the guy was. It was like a uh, he had recently gotten married, and um, they had, his wife had shipped a whole bunch of stuff from Germany or something where she was from, and one of the things was her grandfather's favorite radio. Yeah, but the, everything got damaged in shipping, and the radio wouldn't work. You know, plugged it in, cleaned. I mean, he's I guess, you know knows how to fix things and he couldn't make it work. And then like during, during the wedding, they heard like this music coming from somewhere and it was the radio and it was playing uh, like, you know, her grandfather's favorite song or something like that. And she's like, my grandfather's here. I know it, you know? And like, it was just like, you know, and of course his rational mind comes up with, explanations uh i mean you know i'm not sure what those explanations were maybe you know it was an especially warm day and so the wires expanded and completed a connection that hadn't been i mean something like that right yeah like there always is an explanation but he was like this really threw me for a loop and then i think a couple years later he repudiated that essay but um this demonstrates what I was saying before, how much our beliefs are part of our identity. Yeah. So in a way, <clears throat> paradigms change one funeral at a time. Or if your deep worldview changes, that means part of you has died. Yeah. It is to, to have the, um, a profound shift in your worldview is inseparable from having a profound shift in your very being, in who you are. They don't, you can't, again, beliefs are not isolated intellectual things. And that's why new age teachings about change your reality by changing beliefs are kind of naive. Can you actually change your beliefs? Yeah. It's more like when you are going through a deep change, then your beliefs no longer co-resonate with who you are becoming. And at those moments, then yeah, you can change your beliefs. But ordinarily, you cannot just apply your will to change your beliefs as if they were uh, some pages on a notebook and you could rip out one page and write a new page in. Yeah. It's not that simple. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, I bring up all the time the, the idea of if it was so, if it was that simple that like your beliefs would change your reality, then you would have a much greater level of success, quote unquote, amongst people who are who are doing this um, type of work, who are trying to, you know, change their whole lives with their beliefs and just, you know, project an affirmation onto something that would, 
you know, change their life. And you see time and time again that, you know, the success rate is really small. So, you know, you have to explore what that is. And I mean, you have alluded to a couple of things that it could be, maybe there's a deeper transformation that really has to occur for things to change. Um, but, you know, to Michael Schremer for a moment. Yeah, we have to, we have to like, I mean, the, temp- the temptation to denounce people and write them off is so strong. But for a guy like Michael Schirmer, I mean, he's an interesting character, you know, like I can't help but love the guy. Yeah. Uh, despite his, his venomous orthodoxy, <laughs> uh, like there's something endearing about him. And, and, and for him to, like if, for someone who's built a career as a skeptic, if he ever did uh, renounce those views or even um, admit that he was wrong about some of them, that would be momentous. Yeah. Because if he could do that, then there's hope for the world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, then there's hope for Israel and Palestine. Yeah. You know, then there's hope for the, the uh, United States with our divisions. Yeah. Like somebody, probably everybody, is going to have to make the humili- humiliating confession that they were wrong about something important. Yeah. And if and if if people don't model that, <laughs> now I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, what am I going to have to confess to having been profoundly wrong about? You know, for 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 public figures and and opinion leaders, thought leaders, this is a matter of of very personal, uh, acute relevance. Um, you know, I, I, I go through this sometimes, you know, especially with my, um, study of COVID-19 and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, quite often I visit the territory of what if I have been totally wrong about the whole thing (laughs) and maybe no, I've never like come out directly and said COVID is a hoax or something like that. Right. But I've certainly, um, introduced uh, skepticism yeah. about certain aspects of COVID public health policy. Yes. I'll say that. Um, I've said, hey, you know, we should really be looking into the uh, herbal treatments that other parts of the world are using for it. Yeah. Uh, we should really be asking why, um, you know, Africa has so few cases despite in most places, not taking any public health measures or not taking very many. Uh, I mean, like all kinds of stuff, you know, introducing doubt. Um, and, and like, what if that's killed people? Yeah. You know, like I, I go to this and then, and then when I feel that alarm, then I'll go into the, um, the orthodox information about it. Yeah. And just to make sure that my viewpoint isn't because I've been ignoring yeah. And, you know, and only looking at the quote alternative material. Yeah. If I only look at the alternative material, then I'm doing the same thing as the people that the alternative people are criticizing. Yeah. Criticizing them for not looking into the uh, dissenting views. Well, are you looking into the views that dissent from your own views? That's what we need to do. Yeah. And it's scary to do it. I know it's scary from personal experience. Like when I read the the views that that contradict my own, I'm like kind of scared, <laughs> and I want to run back to my side to have someone assure me that no, we're right and they're wrong. Yeah, and I think that right there is is where 
you know, also community can be important, but being careful that having the community around you is not just that echo chamber, right? Because, you know, sometimes I, you know, I get into a similar boat where, you know, the balanced inquiry is and the scrutiny on both sides has to be equal in order to really kind of understand um, what's going on. And, and sometimes I'll just throw on a local news press conference where the, the mayor or the premier of, of the province or something is giving some sort of brief on, on the COVID update and what's to come. And, and I listen to them and I, not only does it feel sometimes, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what I mean by this, but, but inauthentic in the sense of not only do it, does it feel like the information is may not be the whole picture, but it feels like it's being presented to the public as like, it's like almost optics. Like maybe behind the scenes, they don't really know, but they, they have to make it look like they're really putting a lot of effort into doing things. I, I don't know, but it something about it doesn't feel like that I feel included in, in this, this, this sort of province-wide community of we're trying to do the best. It feels right. like... I'm being spoken to from a what, what you might call like a corporate lens. Like it's just no, okay, we got to make it sound like this and do this to, to protect our butts. Right. How do we manage public opinion? How do we combat vaccine hesitancy? How do we yeah. you know, uh, increase compliance with public health measures? Well, we better not tell them this. We should only tell them that. We should spin it this way. Yeah, this is you know the the, the conspiracy hypothesis, mm -hmm. shall I say, the conspiracy theory. Uh, and I'm not talking about small conspiracies. I'm talking about the the conspiracy theory that says that a dark conspiracy explains the events of our of our world. Yeah, um, that draws on the um, the the lies, the deception, the lack of transparency of our mm. governments. Yeah, they are offering us all of the building blocks of a conspiracy theory. Yeah, like why should we trust them? when they manipulate public opinion all the time to steer us into wars, uh, to maintain economic inequality, to maintain the power of Wall Street, to maintain the power of corporations. Like this is not controversial, really, that that government does this. Absolutely, yeah. So, so why wouldn't we, you know, like it's just a very simple step from there to say that, that, that you know, they are, um, it's just like another step of, of of secrecy and manipulativeness to a full-blown conspiracy theory. Yeah. It's totally rational. Yeah. I don't see why. It doesn't mean that it's true, uh, that it's literally true, but it's totally understandable why, why intelligent people wouldn't take, you know, the skepticism another level yeah. farther. And uh, yeah, one of the ways that, that I look at it is it's almost like in some cases, people have no choice but to begin to entertain conspiracy, meaning it's like, oh, okay, I'm, I, I literally can't get an answer from, from government about stuff. Like if, if someone were to do balanced inquiry on the topic of, of vaccinations, you would have no choice but to come back with a more balanced view about it, meaning maybe they've maybe they've done something maybe they maybe they haven't they they do damage some people i don't know how many but it's not like what we're being told but from from public health like we know that there's a lot more to this story and so you got to ask the question well why why would pharmaceutical companies maintain you know the narrative well maybe it's because they want their profits but then why is government 
complacent? And why are they not questioning on a deeper level, right? It's almost like people have to start to think what is going on, right? And I, the, the other big one that I think is, again, controversial, but interesting to talk about is 9-11. Because it's another one of those major events where if you look into the NIST report, you look into the science, right? I have a friend of mine who's, con- he's an engineer, he's gone really deep on this. You, there's a lot of questions, And so if government doesn't want to address this, people have no choice but to say, so what is going on? So in in your perspective, now that we're kind of on the topic of of conspiracy, um, is is it important at this moment that as a collective, we seem to be having a, a greater discussion around conspiracy and we're, we're trying to see where it might actually be real? You think this is an important yeah. discussion? I, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's important, and I think it's um, a symptom of the breakdown in our deep narratives, uh, the the guiding stories and mythologies of our of our civilization. Uh, yeah, you know, we 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 used to have a collective uh, understanding of how things are, what's real, why we're here, what the destiny of humanity was. Like there, there was a, a a general agreement on that that no longer persists, and there's therefore a crisis of meaning that affects people's own personal lives too, because human beings derive meaning from their participation in the story of that society, and and this crisis in meaning um, can shunt people into cults and conspiracy theories and into fascism uh, and into just um, uh, escapism. Uh, Like a lot of what we're seeing in our culture now is uh, a result, uh, a a symptom of the generalized breakdown in meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. 9-11 vaccines, like, it's impossible because we don't have sound, transparent, collective mechanisms for the construction of knowledge. It is literally impossible to know the truth. Yeah. Because one person cannot know the truth. Yeah. In a, a society as complex as our own. So when our, our, uh, primary institutions of knowledge creation, which would be journalism, academia, um, and what else? Philosophy, <laughs> but but primarily, you know, science and, and academia. When these are captive of corporate interests, financial interests, then you know where is where is the average citizen to go? Like you can do your best as an independent researcher, but an independent researchers and, and, you know, there's a community of researchers. So this, I'm I'm overstating the case here, but that community of researchers doesn't have anywhere near the, the institutions of peer review and um, the refinement of intellectual ideas Mm -hmm. that, and the culture of uh, the intellectual culture that, academia once had at least partially yeah and maybe to some extent still has in some fields um but it doesn't have like these 
these self-correcting mechanisms that actually make it able to to um, find out as much as as we need to to know right now. So like we literally cannot know. Like I've gone pretty deep into the vaccine issue too, you know. And I mean, my personal view is that that um, vaccines are much less necessary, much less effective, and much more dangerous than is conventionally believed. Yeah. How much more? How much less? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I can go into the material about how um, most of the infectious killers were already in steep decline before vaccines were introduced. You know, I can look at the websites where parents are telling these heartbreaking stories by the thousands, you know, and the doctor said I was crazy and we never got compensated. And, um, you know, like there's, it's certainly a lot, it's a much, much more questionable practice than the, um, that our established institutions are telling us. Um, but then to, to go into, oh, it's part of, a deliberate sterilization, population reduction campaign, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, there's some uh, disturbing pieces of evidence that those people bring out. But I'm like, yeah, but you could interpret it this way, you know? Like Bill Gates, like he seems like he sincerely believes that he, like there's, it gets into this murky territory Mm -hmm. where I'm like, we don't have the transparent, um, we don't have the transparency in place as a society to ever know that for sure. Yeah. 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 I wonder, I, I wrote a piece not too long ago, kind of looking at some of this stuff because it was the, my, my perspective on it is almost that I believe all of these conversations are important pieces of discourse that have to happen on a collective level. And, and I, I often wonder if, even if the conspiracy end of it is real in some cases, right? Meaning, you know, to be to be as specific as possible, like, for example, maybe maybe Bill Gates say, you know, uh, maybe he is working to try and uh, do something with vaccines and he knows that maybe they're not the greatest in some cases, right? But the question is, is if you had to present that idea to the masses, what would be the best, most effective way to present it where people would actually open up to the idea of having a real discourse about say vaccinations. And, and so my, my idea I was putting forth was almost uh, the reflection point for what you might call the conspiracy community to look at it and say, by going to what sounds like sort of the craziest, almost murkiest evidence, are we actually, you know, potentially shutting down the discourse even further because we're not recognizing that, you know, the rest of the world, if you will, um, is not really going to be open to that extremity, but maybe they'd be open to a better put together discourse on this. And, and that's kind of yeah. the, the, the discussion that, that I'm kind of interested in having is like, can we meet the collective where we're at with some of these subjects and be more effective? Yeah, but see, then you're kind of making it into a matter of rhetorical tactics. Mm-hmm. And someone would say, no, you got to speak the truth. Right. You know, if you're hedging your bets and not, you know, saying what you really believe, then you're you're not going to, you don't have the, your words aren't going to have any power. Uh, so I think that, that 
this, however, but but I think that there's there's some gold here at the end of this rainbow. Yeah, which is that the ineffectiveness of these really extreme viewpoints in changing people's minds. Um, it could be that they are sensing in our in like the extremism they are sensing a um lack of critical thinking mm-hmm. a lack of humility um like and and i would say then then you know for the extremist like have you really done that practice of looking um deeply into the criticisms of your views yeah. and maybe, maybe you have okay uh have you really like so just to take the example of bill gates um have you really entertained the possibility that like all people <laughs> um if maybe he, you know there he is and he's funding the vaccines and stuff and then like some data point comes up that doesn't really fit his worldview and his narrative and he's like well you know that Maybe there's something there, and I'm sure the scientists will. If, it, if there's really anything to it, I'm sure the scientists will discover that uh, because science works, and we're on the right path. Like, and so he'll kind of dismiss that data point, and then like some other thing comes up, and it's like, hey, you know, this there's some kind of error. This um, uh, human, whatever gonadotropin got into the vaccines in Kenya and made a lot of women infertile. And it's like, oh gosh, we didn't really planning for that to happen, but um, it's okay because they're overpopulated anyway. And let's just not talk about that too much. You know, they don't, they don't really know that it's for their own good, um, but we're doing good here. And besides, if this got out, it would harm the overall vaccine agenda, which is really important for the health of humanity. And so we shouldn't really tell people about some of these things that might feed anti-vaccine hysteria. Like people have a good reason to lie (laughs) in their world. You know, it takes a lot of courage to tell the truth when it goes against something that you want to happen and something that you believe. So what if we just saw Bill Gates as a very powerful, but just as flawed and just as complicated as anybody else person like then like to see to see that complexity involves a sacrifice of crusading against evil yeah and 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 it makes the world complicated and it also in the end makes your your activism a lot more effective because you're in reality you're not jousting against these uh, exaggerated caricatures of evil tilting against windmills, you know, the Don Quixote. I mean, what an image that is, you know, he thinks the windmills are giants, you know, and he's <laughs> jousting against them with his lance. <laughs> like that, that's what's, what's happening here. So no wonder nothing changes. Yeah. So I think that, that this is the kind of uh, humility and maturity that's necessary for us to, because it's not like bad things are not happening perpetrated by the controllers of a lot of wealth and power. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's generally a mistake to locate the perpetrator in the, in the person of individuals uh, atop these organizations. 
Um, I think that it's much, the perpetrator is much more of a collective emergent phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we, we, it's really time for some, some humility and maturity in the, uh, conspiracy sector. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that was kind of the, the essence of the, uh, the, the piece was to bring in that, that maturity at the end of the day, because I, I just feel we're at a time where, where that conversation is becoming mainstream. I mean, we saw it so much with COVID, um, but with COVID being such a difficult thing to navigate, right? So like we were speaking about earlier, um, public health, maybe they're holding back on saying certain things because of optics or because they don't want to get a certain reaction out of the public. Um, you know, maybe some of the papers and independent doctors that are coming out on online, maybe some of them are wrong, right? Who knows, right? But but regardless, we have we have this really difficult moment of we don't really know I, it's hard to say this i'm going to say we don't really know how dangerous the virus is but we kind of do because like we can kind of look at numbers and we can see the infection mortality rate for example and we know which areas like which age groups and which people with comorbidities we know who's at greater risk um and so one of the questions as it relates to freedom is if we know that some of these people um have greater risk and we but 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 a lot of us want to be free we want to be free to go out in society without a mask we want to be free to not have a vaccine and still enjoy all the modern amenities of life um let's say covid does stick around how do we bring in like from your perspective and i i, I don't think there's an answer here but i'd just love to talk about this how do we navigate a potential threat in community when that threat doesn't really affect everybody, but it might affect a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, this is uh, an important question to be asking. And it's not just about freedom, uh, personal freedom at the expense of somebody else. Okay, mm -hmm. This is about what kind of society do we want to have? Right. And what do we value as a society? Right now, we're making a collective choice to value the uh, health and lives of the small percentage of people that you mentioned um, and to value that over having, uh, you know, dances, festivals, uh, choirs, summer camps, um, you know, all of the things that are no longer permitted uh, or happening under COVID. Right. And I can't say that that's a right or a wrong decision, um, but it it is something we have to recognize that we are sacrificing some values in favor of other values, that, that there are competing values at play here. And the reason that it's so important is, is can be, we can understand why it's so important to have that conversation by looking at the extremes. So if we were facing bubonic plague with a 50% mortality rate, <laughs> I don't think anybody would say, well, it's, you know, we should sacrifice 50% of the population so that we can have dance parties. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, what if it's the other extreme? What if there's a very, very rare disease going around that is asymptomatic in, in 9,999,999 people out of, out of 10 million? 
So one in 10 million people are going to die <laughs> if we have an uh, open society with freedom of assembly, uh, festivals, parties, choirs, summer camps. Well, every life is precious, right? Are we going to decide to condemn um, that? What would that be nationwide? 330 people to death just so we can have our parties? I mean, that's a pretty extreme example, isn't it? Yeah. Would we do that? Well, what if it's just one person? You know, how are you going to explain that to their to their to their mother that we sacrifice this so that we could have parties and not have to wear masks? Okay, so that's another extreme. I think most people would say, you know, we're just going to have to accept that that a few people are going to die for us to have a meaningful life. Well, COVID is somewhere in between those two examples. Uh, even if you accept, like, and I'll, I just want to add in here that there's still a lot of anomalous information, a lot of anomalous data points that don't fit the standard narrative of infection. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I just want to throw this into the mix just to add a little bit more confusion <laughs> and a little less certainty. And I hope I'm not killing people by doing that, but I just... Uh, heard from a friend in the Ivory Coast, uh, and and she was like, "Yeah, no one wears masks here. People, the streets are bustling with people. We still have festivals, weddings. Like no one's even talking about COVID. Yeah. It's not even on the on the mental map here. Um, and it's been like that, you know, the whole time. And you know, they have like 133 deaths or something like that." Um, like they should have, you know, an explosion of cases. Yeah. What's going on here? Is there some factor that we're not aware of? Uh, like uh, is, you know, and, 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 uh, but I don't want to say, oh, then we should totally discard the diligent work of thousands of highly educated virologists, uh, and just say, oh, well, they're, you know, deep state on right. the deep state payroll or something like that. If you actually talk to these people and listen to their to their podcast, these are sincere, intelligent people. Yeah. You can't exclude that data point either. But anyway, so but but that aside, just in if we take virology for granted, even then we have these conflicting values. And so what I what I way early on I wrote this essay, The Coronation, and one of the things I, I went into was why is our society so geared toward death avoidance, which is really death postponement um, and, and risk minimization? Yeah. Why has that value become higher and higher relative to other values? Uh, and I won't answer that in, the, in this moment, but it is a crucial question. Otherwise, we could have the vaccine, suppose the vaccine works, okay? Suppose it doesn't have terrible side effects. Um, and and could we go back to normal? Not necessarily, because it maybe will prevent three quarters of the deaths. But we'd still have, you know, a quarter of the people dying. And 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 if if whatever three hundred thousand deaths a year in the U.S. is reason for masking, quarantine, lockdown, distancing, then would seventy five thousand also be? an argument for that or 20,000 or 10,000? Like, where do we draw the line? If we say, like, uh, so what I see is that 
that if the underlying um, the underlying value of risk minimization is not examined, then the COVID regime will be permanent even if COVID is eliminated completely. Yeah. Because people die from flu, people die from common cold. Yeah. Especially elderly people, they die from common cold. Yeah. Because it gives them pneumonia and they die. Yeah. And their lives are just as valuable as anybody else's. So, so the arguments that we have now for shutdown, lockdown, mask, et cetera, et cetera, will never go away. They are permanent unless other values come to the fore. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I very much resonate with this. And, you know, because even just as a little add, like a little tidbit, like paradoxically, sometimes we're, you know, we hear so much one death is too many when it comes to COVID. But if someone dies from a vaccine injury, it's the, the common thing is, yeah, but it's for the greater good, right? Um, what do we really right. mean when we're comparing, like, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's almost like this, like you were saying earlier, the crisis of meaning. Um, I, this is, I, I kind of wanted to talk something out that, that I, I experienced too in the past that I'm kind of going through now, which is um, at the beginning of COVID, I had this intuitive feeling, like I was getting messages from a lot of different people, from some people who had connections to intelligence agencies, all these different things. And they were kind of sharing like, you know, that there was a potential that they kind of knew the virus wasn't going to kill that many people, but that there was potentially another strain of it. Right. And so this would, that this would obviously follow the narrative that, you know, there was creation, lab creation involved with this and, and the other strain of it would be more deadly. And this was like coming to the early stuff. And I remember hearing all this stuff. This was back in March. And I had this feeling, this intuitive feeling that, that was like, I just kept hearing the voice. Don't try and figure it out right? Like don't try and figure out all the numbers and all of this because it's too confusing. And I felt that voice for, for like probably good two or three months until we got into kind of late spring, early summer. And, um, at the time I turned my content focus to just asking people the question, what world do you want to live in? Is this a great opportunity? Is this a disruption in our current way of life that offers you a deeper questioning? Right. And as I did this, the feedback I would get is, yeah, but, you know, how do you get world leaders to question their values, to question the type of society they want to live in when they're so married to their position, to their job, and they uh, apparently are the ones making so many of the decisions in our society? So it, it almost the criticism towards my work or the critique towards my work was... Um, you know, this doesn't really have any real world value per se. It's a nice, it's a nice platitude to talk about, but how do we actually implement this? And I, I have an answer myself for it, but I don't really know that it's necessarily true, you know, a, a good answer, but I'd be curious to hear like, how do we, how do we go about, you know, re-questioning the type of world we want to live in, the type of values we may want to hold or uh, how we want to navigate how many people are it's okay to have die and you know to, to to experience life to the fullest how do we navigate that and expect that world leaders or decision makers or policymakers are actually going to align with some of those re-questioning processes as well yeah uh, i wish i had a good answer <laughs> to that i mean you're asking okay well how do we change the world right Charles? right exactly um I'll start off with a point you made. I think that's that is important. You know, you, when you talked about uh, how 
every life is precious when it comes to, you know, one death is one COVID death is too many, but then the same logic isn't applied to vaccine damage. And it's just an example of how um, these, these uh, humanistic truisms are deployed in the interests of capital, in the interests of existing powerful institutions. Um, and, and that's a, a, you know, something important, I think, to keep in mind. Um, and it's related to the question you asked, because these institutions have a life of their own that cannot be reduced to the choices and beliefs of their leaders. I think we saw this with uh, Donald Trump. You know, he his, he personally, I think, was a lot more skeptical of the dominant COVID narrative than the policies that he ended up reluctantly agreeing with. He pretty much had no choice. Right. It, it's, you know, basically you either go along with it or you lose your leadership position or you lose your job. Yeah. So, so I, I think that if we are hoping that we'll somehow um, change the minds of our leaders and that that will cause change to happen, that is actually investing more power in those leaders than they actually have. Right. Uh, they are operating in a economic system, um, a, a cultural climate, a climate of belief. And of course, they have leeway. I mean, this is true of all of us. You know, we're all subject to multiple pressures to conform. Uh, and the farther we deviate from those pressures, the more courage it takes. Same is true of our leaders. So one of the, one of the ways to, to approach this is, well, how do we change that environment? How do we change the, the, the atmosphere, the, the culture? Uh, the stories that we live in. And yeah, for some people that might have a political expression for other people that might be, um, might look apolitical, but yeah, I don't have, um, I don't have a formula for, for social change. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't want to like, I mean, this, you know, we could talk about, um, various theories of social change and, and the effectiveness of different kinds of politics and stuff. I'm not saying don't engage in politics. Um, but I, I, I will observe that in the political arena, normally any, any proposal that is, that is remotely practical or, <clears throat> or, or realistic is so uh, tepid uh, so insignificant a deviation from what we already have yeah. that it's just not nearly enough to really deal with our, to make any significant change. If it's politically feasible, if you could imagine that the opposition party might agree to it and we could compromise our way to that, then it's already not nearly the level of change that we need. Yeah. And yeah, this is, this is the, you know, and I, and I don't know. I don't know what the process that that goes through my head when I think about these things. Like, I don't know how to how to describe it. It's just kind of like one of those things where I I too feel that what needs to happen is such a deep change 
that I, I almost start to feel like, well, yeah, I, I, I can see that it could happen through culture. I could see how culture could eventually build and we could influence it over the course of time. Um, then, you know, sometimes a thought will come in where it's like, yeah, but like if, if there is all these, even if the, the worldview of authoritarianism and, and ultimate control is, is marching forward, like we kind of seeing it happen, do we have time for, for culture to change or, or does that authoritarianism in, in, in control becoming more extreme? Does that act as a catalyst to, to push the culture to change faster? Um, I, I don't know. And, and, and sometimes it feels like, you know, there's part of you that, that, that feels like, okay, it's possible. We can change these deeper aspects of ourselves, our, our deep meaning, our deep worldviews. And other times it feels like, I don't know that it's possible. And I don't know if I'm going to ever see a world that's not just like 1984, you know, like, and it's just, a, it's an yeah. interesting, it feels like now is the most the most intensified time in the course of the 11 and a half years I've been doing this work that now is the most intensified time that I've been having these experiences. And it's, I would say the first time where I've actually started to feel moments of, man, I don't know if this is possible. And uh, I know I don't have a question here, but I kind of just wanted to leave that there and say, do you have any thoughts on that? Like to expand upon? Yeah. I do. Okay. There's there's two things. One is that in um in a certain kind of very serious initiatory process, there's always a moment where it seems impossible where it seems like you'll never make it through, where you reach the end of your resource and, and it's hopeless. Uh, and, and you basically surrender to a process. And that, that act of surrender, which is not even a choice on some level, it's part of a big process, that, that surrender is what opens the door to unsuspected capacities that come from a changed being. That's mm -hmm. what makes it an initiation. So if you have not yet, and I'm not just speaking to you generally, but, but, but you, you invoked this, you know, that you've, you've had these moments where it's like, Oh my God, I don't think it's possible. <laughs> Nothing I've done is enough. Uh, that could mean that we are in just such an initiation. Yeah. And, and collectively, I think also, uh, there are, there are a lot of signs that we're coming to such a hopelessness as well. Yeah. Everything that I know how to do is not enough. Therefore, I give up on everything I know how to do. And then something that I didn't know how to do becomes available. One thing that we've seen with COVID is that our collective power to change our behavior is enormous. You know, if, if last year someone had said, we need to curtail global air travel by 95% in you know, one month, everyone would have said that's impossible. Yet we did that. Okay. It's not impossible. So, it, and it was possible because of a generalized agreement among humanity. So we're being shown the power of our agreements for one thing. This, however, so there, there's part of, of 
of that I hear speaking in you and and I recognize it because it's in myself as well that wants me to say that that wants to hear some kind of certainty either <laughs> yes you're right it's hopeless it's you know a 1984 future or no um something is going to happen like i part of me craves an objective reality yeah that i can comfortably sink into but what if it's actually up to to what if it depends on our choices what if it's hanging in the balance and your choices i i mean you individually like it's in a perfect balance and it's your choices that are going to nudge it uh to tilt it into a more beautiful world or a nightmare orwellian world yeah what if the 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 world isn't objective what if your choices orient you to one of many futures that coexist in a superposition of states and then the rational mind's like hold on but that can't be <clears throat> you know true for you and true for me at the same time what if we make opposite choices you know then does it stay in the balance and then that thinking leads to nothing i did do matters because it depends on a billion other people's choices right exactly so there's a paradox here that can only be resolved by letting go of the uh, illusion of the separate self and i'm not going to go too much into metaphysics but i'll just point to the um innate knowledge that we, that everyone has that their choices are significant yeah beyond what we could predict uh or or control with our rational minds beyond what we could rationalize and and to say well they're significant because you know of the butterfly effect you know or because of this because of that like you don't that th that's just a way to to justify and validate something that you already know yeah like your choices are significant uh and yeah so i'm not going to try to mentally uh untangle the paradox but i would just say that that this sense that you're speaking to of being in a, in a, in a crucial moment um that's that's true <clears throat> and and the truth of it isn't to say hurry up and do something don't rest <laughs> you know this is the do or die moment uh the purpose of that realization is to sharpen our presence yeah and the sharpened presence makes us available to to act uh to respond yeah uh, it heightens our responsibility and and those actions may not you know or they may but they may not involve you know going out into the streets and and protesting something uh but it's simply to that it makes us more present more alive um more aware of a of an internal discrepancy um and that's that's what generates urgency awareness of an internal discrepancy yeah 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 that was well said i i, I particularly liked the uh sort of the initiation um i i don't want to say metaphor i mean it, it's, a, it's a kind of a reality of a lot of situations right when we when we go through these moments of i even think of back in you know my journey with collective evolution like the moment 
I surrendered to trying to figure out how I was going to support myself doing this. That was, that was the moment everything appeared and it may not have appeared in a way that I would have thought it, 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 it just started to appear and it wasn't like I manifested and attracted this through my beliefs, but through a, a surrendering of an old idea of an old paradigm of an old, uh, I, you know, this is how it has to be, so to speak. And, uh, you know, and then boom, things opened up and, and, uh, yeah, I feel like we're definitely collectively at that moment now of yeah. It's, <laughs> going back to the logical side, it then becomes, okay, great. How do we get the word out then that everybody has to surrender? <laughs> but, no, that's not the right message. No, I know exactly. But yeah. that's, that's the yeah. mind coming back in, right? It's not, yeah. It's not that you have to surrender. Um, yeah. But it, surrender is part of the process. Right. And in fact, fighting the surrender is part of the process. Right. You know, like desperately clinging on is part of the process. You develop muscles in desperately clinging on that are actually useful later. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's 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 really mysterious. And but I just I guess the one thing one thing I just wanted to I'm not sure if I got in is that um both we are doomed and oh this is just what is needed to initiate us like neither of those um fully speak to the feeling that our choices right now are significant you know it's like like anything that that puts it out of our hands doesn't contain the full truth right right yeah and that's perfect because i just did a uh, i just did a i had an astrologer in here we did an episode about the great conjunction and um, mm-hmm. I like him as an astrologer because he's he's very grounded in that. Um, it's almost like a take on on the energy, but that but that leaves humanity with the power, as opposed to, well, you know, the, the stars will dictate what we go through, right? And that's it, right? Um, which you know, I'm yeah. not really a fan of myself, but um, that very much just linked right through to some of the stuff you just said there. So it was fantastic. Yeah. But um, and I think there could be truth in this, in this astrological stuff. Like I'm, I'm not really yeah. knowledgeable about astrology, but I'm not going to write it. I don't want this to, 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 you know, be caused to write off any of the insights into our time that are available yeah. know, from astrology and stuff. Yeah. I, um, I think I, I was just, yeah, go ahead. I was just cracking up when you were talking about, when, when you first started and not sure how you can make a living at it, you know, and it just reminded me of the movie Wayne's world where they like start <laughs> doing these really ostentatious product placements. And then I thought the vacuum and the, yeah. And then I thought I'm like, oh, I'm going to do a product placement for my new brick company. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just started cracking up. I, I, I get it. I have that, that weird type of humor too. It just uh, goes through my head all the time. That that's all. Um, yeah. I mean, in terms of what I wanted to to throw in and talk about here, I mean, we've we've kind of gone through it all. If, do you have any any other thoughts or or perhaps closing ideas or feelings that you want to share? There's one more thing I can add in actually uh, on the conspiracy topic because mm-hmm. um, I, I said uh, you know I gave this somewhat more charitable or more mature view of Bill Gates and maybe how he's operating and stuff like that. Um, but I know that the people who have really followed these, uh, these narratives, um, these conspiracy theories deeply, they'll be like, okay, but what about, you know, the 
satanic ritual abuse, you know, and these like these outcroppings of really, really dark material that are, um, I don't know, like I've looked at some of that stuff. Some of it is like, wow, that's kind of hard to explain. Others of it is like, you know, you could interpret it this way, you know, like slow motion videos, you know, where then like their eyes go reptilian or something <laughs> yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. And I'm like, that one kind of looked like a trick of the light, you know, that one, that one does look kind of weird, you know, did they Photoshop that? Like to, to really like believe that um, <clears throat> you have to take something of a leap of faith. It doesn't mean that it's not true. Yeah. But I wanted to just add in um, a complexifying and mystifying feature of reality, which is that it has to do with the dissolving of objective reality and the understanding that, our state of being uh, is, it's not that beliefs create reality, but that it's that our state of being um, has a mysterious intimate connection to the reality that we experience, yeah. both in the way that it filters data, but also in the way that it bends reality itself or, or generates synchronicities that can confirm the beliefs that, that, we're exploring um and another way to look at it is that is that these 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 like really occult aspects of the conspiracy theories these are mythologies and and mythological truth can um project into experiential uh truth um and 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 not just i'm not just saying personal experience but i'm saying even the shared experiences of groups of people who are exploring the same reality, um, just in the way that that um, your online behavior influences your Facebook feed, mm -hmm. so also your behavior in this matrix influences your reality feed, uh, and that that yeah, like these these occult aspects of conspiracy theories it's not that they are literally true it's not that they're not literally true i mean this is it but it's that that they um operate in a mythic realm and must be addressed on that level that now that's going to, this is going to get too, too complex. So maybe I'm just going to, well, uh, I'll just leave that like as a teaser. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end, yeah. I, when you're, when you're saying those things, like a lot of things come to mind. Um, and like, for example, like I, I think about, and if we don't want to go here, we don't have to, but, but I was, I was like, I, I think about like, um, I grew up Catholic, right? Obviously no longer, you know, by the time I was grade five or six, it was kind of starting to not make sense. It kind of really diverged away by the end of high school. But um, I did tinker, you know, over the later years of my teens and into my early 20s with like Ouija boards and stuff. And um, and then through whatever you, whatever you want to call mystical experiences or, or, you know, meditation or combining that with paranormal experiences, you, you look at it and you go, okay, similar to what you were saying about how myth can become reality for a subset of people. Um, you know, the Catholic religion believes in the devil and that there's a series of demons that are named 
and and those demons could potentially take over a, a, per, a particular human and you could use Catholic rites to um, remove that demon from that person. And for some people that absolutely works and other people who might have observed, like myself, someone who very much appeared to be possessed. I don't know, but it was weird. It involved a demonic roar, as you would call it, that I... I have no idea where it came from in, in, in space, like in, in space where I had no idea where it came from. Um, yeah. I was already well past my, my Catholic, uh, beliefs, but, but I, I saw it as, and, and I saw it as these, when we, when we collectively agree on something enough for, for potentially a visual way of putting it, we, we set up almost like this pocket of potential that is the definition of what it is that we believe. And, some of us can plug into that and that would be part right. of our experience. And some of us I may just, not plug into that. And therefore it's not part of our experience. Is, is that, a, a, you know, kind of yeah, like what you're yeah. saying? So, so, so the, the, um, corpus of, of Catholicism, I mean, this, this gigantic field of belief, it creates a reality field that you can enter into and you can accomplish certain things. Like certain things are real within that reality field. Yeah. And it, and it exists beyond people's personal beliefs. Like you could walk into something like that as an atheist yeah. and walk into an exorcism. And, and like, you're, it's like when you step into a different field, then things change, you know, it's not just up to you. Um, although you could, like, I could see like a really hardened skeptic carries the field of um, reductionistic atheism or something with him. Yeah. And sees that entire exorcism through that lens. Right. And what he notices is some sleight of hand trick that the priest is doing. And what he notices is, is, you know, the, you know, somebody in the closet making a roar, you know, or he <laughs> suspects that happened, you know, or yeah. says you couldn't disprove that or like he has a totally different experience of it. Uh, so if we accept this, I mean, because this kind of technology that you're talking about, Catholic exorcisms, you know, this is uh pretty universal among most human cultures you know it's not just catholics i yeah. mean i mean most cultures around the world as far as i know going back into prehistory believed in this kind of thing yeah and and still do uh like it works it's not like they were so um befuddled by their superstitions that they imagined it to work when it wasn't working yeah like this uh, and in fact, here's the really trippy part. Uh, it's not so different from the uh, medical rituals that we're using to combat this evil spirit called COVID mm -hmm. that is invisible to anybody but a priest who has special divinatory equipment yeah. to see the spirit and warns you to <laughs> avoid touching anybody unclean uh, who isn't who hasn't donned the appropriate ceremonial garb yeah. <laughs> that prevents the evil spirit from jumping into you. How different is it really from an exorcism? Yeah. Uh, and there's this complicated ritual, this incredibly complicated ritual that ends up with the injection of a potion into your body in like a, a mini blood ritual that, and the potion has been prayed over by, by many, many, many highly trained priests in their white jackets, in their ceremonial garb. I mean, this is not actually 
different in the in its template yeah. from anything else that humans have done. And imagine the power of this reality field, uh, of this belief system, of this mythology to bend reality around it, and to 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 make this contagion look to those in that reality field as a virus. I mean, you know, we 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 narrate it in the conceptual religious terms that are available in the story. And, and, and again, it's not just a filtering of information, it's a bending of reality to it. And maybe that's why, you know, in Ivory Coast, it's where, the, where a different field is still strong. Mm-hmm. And, and many other countries, I've heard similar stories from, you know, many places in the third world. You know, maybe that's why it's not afflicting them so much. So this is, um, you know, and then maybe, I mean, if you are a member of the particular cult called modernity um, and science, if you are a member of that cult, and most of us are to some extent, just having grown up here, having been educated here, uh, using concepts like virus, like force, like mass, like, like uh, you know, all these scientific concepts, like we're immersed in this mythology. Maybe what you need is the rituals of this mythology. What you need is the exorcism that is performed by whatever pharmaceuticals, like this is the mythology that we live in. And who am I to come and say your religion is wrong? What I can say, though, is that our religion isn't working very well anymore. Yeah. It has not brought the benefits, the, the paradise that it promised. Technology, science, reason, law, markets have not brought the paradise that they promised. Yeah. And therefore, we are ready for a new mythology. Yeah. Which leads us back to that whole question of, you know, what is it, what is, what is it the world that, what do you really want it to look like? What do you really want to experience? Um, And are we experiencing it today? And do you believe we can? And, you know, all these sorts of deeper questions that, that might inform what um, maybe that new mythology is, and to put it into your words, what that new mythology might be, or what our vision or the type of world we want to work towards. And then, and then maybe, once we play within that paradigm for long enough. Uh, you totally went silent, by the way. Oh. For the last. Um, you know, perhaps it's, it's through the, the longer we sit in this idea of really re-questioning, perhaps that's the moment, like you were saying, in the, the initiation aspect of things, where we actually start the process of seeing where we hold on and where we might need to let go of some of the old ideas as to how we need to be, and uh, and then perhaps we can, I don't know, begin laying the the framework that's that comes after the change in mythology. Is that kind of what? Yeah. You're- so, so I think what we're seeing with the response to COVID and the the uh, application of the uh, elaborate rituals uh, of medicine and of surveillance, you know, and of all of the, all the things that are that are coming through with COVID, what we are seeing is. Uh, the destiny of the mythology that we've been living in. We're seeing where it's going to take us. Yeah. 
we're being shown a glimpse of the future uh, that, you know, that, that this, we're not going to go back to normal or we're going to go maybe halfway back to normal. And then the next thing is going to come along. I mean, it's not just COVID. It was also terrorism. Yeah. You know, it's like every, every, every crisis that we face is an invitation into more control. Yeah. And, and control was supposed to give us paradise. Now we're seeing more clearly what society will look like if we continue doubling down on the mythology of, of control, of domination, of we see other possibilities that are not possible from within it. We see what's possible uh, with like uh, holistic healing modalities. Uh, we see what's possible with holistic agricultural modalities, um, uh, social modalities that aren't about controlling people punishing people, uh, incentivizing people. Like that's, that's all manipulation. That's all control. Uh, but, but, but another kind of society is possible based on a different conception of who we are. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that is what I call the more beautiful world. Our hearts know is possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And I think, uh, I think especially as my internet seems to be getting really wonky here, this could be a, a good time to, uh, to cap things off, but I, I really enjoyed the, the conversation and, uh, you know, the insight and the perspectives that you bring to the table here. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it as well. So yeah, thanks for having me on. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The CE Show. If you have a moment, consider passing this show on to a friend or family member who you think would relate to this type of conversation. Bringing community together in these conversations is key, and you'll find these days people are a lot more receptive to these emerging ideas and perceptions than they may have been in the past. Lastly, visit ctv.one and consider becoming a member of our community where you get access to a ton of video content including original shows, discussions, and courses to help you make sense of the world and transform how you show up in life. Visit cetv.one to learn more.